If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, verse 33. We are in Mark 9. We're going to be looking at verses 33 to 42 this morning. While you are making your way to Mark, I'm going to read from Matthew. We are, as a church, working our way through Matthew, uh, and we're in chapter 10 at this time, and we thought it would be good as we were working our way through Matthew just to pause, and in Matthew chapter 10, there's this list of, of 12 disciples that are mentioned, and so as we are working our way through Matthew, we thought it'd be good to stop and familiarize ourselves, acquaint ourselves with who these 12 men were and what exactly it was that they accomplished. Um, so this morning, we're looking at the Apostle John, and I have said flip to Mark 9, but I'm reading from Matthew 10, so try not to get confused. Go to Mark 9. We're in Mark 9. We're going to be looking at Mark 9 this morning, but I'm going to be reading from Matthew 10. Then I'm going to read from Mark chapter 9, so just stick with me here. Matthew 10, this is where we've been for the last four or five weeks now. And he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Protos, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, whom you know well as Peter's brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and last of all, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. That's where we're at in in Matthew. Now, the text we're going to be looking at this morning as we consider the Apostle John. In all of the Gospels, there is only one recorded instance in which John is recorded as having spoken or having said something. And that's found right here in Mark. So if you would, look with me. Mark chapter 9, verses 33. We're going to go verse 33 to 42. Say, why 42? I've got these paragraphs in my Bible. I'm not sure what the deal here is. Verse 42, Jesus makes a statement, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. In verse 37, as he's talking about what constitutes greatness, he refers to children. So he starts with children and he concludes with children. So the actual section here, this actual narrative extends far beyond. I mean, as you're looking in your Bible, you probably think verses 33 to verse 37 is a unit, verse 38 to verse 41 is a unit, and then verse 42 and on is a whole nother unit. But that's just not the case as we look at it in context. That's all together. And the reason why that's all together is because as we look at the Apostle John's response to Jesus in verses 38 to 41, we need to understand that's a response to his teaching on what constitutes greatness. So that's why we're reading that whole chunk this morning. Sometimes looking at verses and chapters and how the editors of our various translations have chosen to break up the paragraphs, we we sort of lose sight of the context. So just, let's just try to remember to keep it all in context this morning. All right, now I will read. Then we'll pray and get to work. Mark nine thirty three. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. 
John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for the teaching that you gave to the Apostle John. And we thank you, God, for the ministry that he had as he struggled against the heresy of Gnosticism and antinomianism, as he attempted to lead your church in the first century to a pure understanding of what it means to walk with you in love and truth. Father, I just confess to you this morning, all of us here in Bridge Baptist Church, we've struggled with the right balance between being loving and being truthful. Father, our, our fear is that sometimes in our efforts to be truthful, we're not loving, or sometimes in our efforts to be loving, we neglect to be truthful. Father, I think every person here this morning has struggled with the right balance between those things. I pray, God, you would show us how you would have us to love and speak truthfully in this world. I thank you for the Apostle John's life. And as we consider your lesson to him here in Mark chapter 9, I pray, God, that we would learn from it and seek to obey it. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, little children. Good morning. Thank you. I said good morning, and you all kind of stared at me. Let me say it again. Good morning, little children. Now, some of you might be just a little weirded out by that form of greeting. It's not usual. And I have to confess, if someone were to come up to me and say, hello, little boy, I would look at him and say, I'm taller than you. Why are you calling me a little boy? If we were to enter into any kind of a conversation walking in, we were to say, hey, little children, how are you doing? They would look at us like we were weird. And that's not a usual or typical form of greeting. This morning, we're considering the Apostle John. And if you read his letters, he wrote three letters to the churches in Asia Minor. We know them as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 1st John was written as a circular letter to all of the churches in Asia Minor. And then you have 2nd John and 3rd John. These were letters that were addressed to specific individuals. 2nd John was written to a lady whom he encouraged not to greet, not even to say hello to people who are twisting biblical truth. These are individuals who are most likely Gnostics or or antinomians. These are individuals who held to the heresy that it doesn't matter what you do with your life as long as you know Jesus Christ is the Savior. In other words, they reduce spirituality to a simple matter of intellectual knowledge, intellectual understanding, and that such knowledge shouldn't have any bearing on how they live their lives. Third John is written to a guy named Gaius, who John basically said to Gaius, it's good, you love God, that's awesome. There are some missionaries traveling around trying to tell people about the truth, and you need to give them a place to stay in your home. He encouraged this guy in 3 John to be hospitable and to welcome 
missionaries who are traveling around for the sake of the truth. What's interesting is in all three letters, as he's writing either to the church at large or to specific individuals, over and over and over again, a full 19 times in fact, he addresses them as little children. Little children. It was his form of endearment. It was his form of greeting. It was his way of saying hello. More than this, I think it was a reminder to himself as well as a reminder to them of how God views all of us. Where did John learn this form of greeting? Where did he come up with this idea to start calling people little children, knowing that it could be offensive and taken in the wrong way? I think he learned it right here in Mark chapter 9. If you would, please look with me. In Mark chapter 9, it says they came to Capernaum. Now, they're not discussing which among them is the littlest. As they're traveling to Capernaum, their discussion centers around which of them is the greatest. And they're arguing over it. It says they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you guys talking about? What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. Why? Because they weren't talking about which of them was the littlest or the most helpless or the weakest. They weren't talking about which of them was the smallest, the most humble, and the most dependent. No, no, no. They were talking about which of them was going to be the greatest, which of them is the greatest. And Jesus knows that. He's not actually asking them to tell him something that he doesn't already know. His question is meant to be a question of conviction. What are you guys talking about? Because it sounds ridiculous to say, oh, well, we were trying to prove to each other which of us was the biggest man in the room, so to speak. Compared to Jesus, you guys are all pretty small. Jesus knows they keep silent. It says in verse 40, 34, they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So it's time for a little instruction on greatness. You'll notice that nowhere in the Gospels, Jesus never chides, he never rebukes, and he never corrects the desire to be great. To desire to be great is okay. To want to be great is wonderful. To aspire to achieve great things for the sake of God Nowhere does Christ ever rebuke that. Nowhere do the scriptures ever condemn that. What we find, though, is a corrective in terms of what constitutes greatness. The problem is that as we pursue greatness, you and I, we're not really interested, if we're going to be gut-level honest with each other, about being great from God's perspective. We want to be great from each other's perspective. We don't want to be great. We want to be greater than each other. It's not enough just to be great for most of us. We want to be known by those around us as being great. And Jesus begins to instruct instruct the disciples on what constitutes true greatness. Look with me, verse 35, he sat down and he called the 12. So he gets all his guys together and he said to them, if anyone would be first, the greatest, the greatest of all, If anyone wants to be top dog, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, this automatically flips greatness on its head. And at first glance, it seems contradictory. It seems like, you know, Jesus is talking out both sides of his mouth. You want to be great, you got to be last. You want to be first, you got to become last. Now, he can't be that silly. I mean... He turned the world upside down. He's got nations, you know, entire multitudes of people who follow him, who worship him as Savior. So as you look at the text a little closely, 
What he's doing here is he's trying to remove the disciples' illusion of what constitutes greatness, and he's trying to replace it with his own definition. And this is how he does it. Verse 36, he takes a child and he puts him in the midst of them, small little child, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, the teaching here is, and we looked at this in depth last week. I won't rehash all of that. This is, for those of you who are joining us this week and weren't here last week, this is a continuation, part two, from last week's message. Jesus says, if you want to be great, you should view everybody the way I view people. And it's the great leveler here. A child in God's eyes is just as valuable as what we would consider to be the greatest man in the room. And so the point he's making to them here is you need to look after the needs and the interests of children the same way as you would attend to the great men among us. He's trying to convict them about their natural desire to curry favor from the great ones and to say, in God's eyes, what constitutes true greatness is looking after every small child who's created in his image. That's his basic teaching. To receive a child, to take upon yourself the needs of the weakest in society, small little children, to embrace all of their weaknesses, all of their infirmities, to look after them, to care for them, to love them as far as Christ is concerned, is equivalent to caring for, loving, and serving the creator of the universe himself. Whoever receives a child receives Jesus. Whoever receives Jesus receives God the Father who sent Jesus. The connection is clear. To receive the child, to care for the child, is to care for God. Greatness must be understood from God's perspective, not from our own. John has a question. He doesn't actually ask a question. He doesn't need to. He's talking to the omniscient, all-knowing God of the universe. So he's just going to make a statement, and that will be sufficient to begin the dialogue. And his statement is, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following me. He's casting out demons. There's no question that he's doing a legitimate spiritual work here. Demons, they attempted to stop him. The scriptures are clear. Their attempt probably was not successful. John doesn't say we stopped him. He says we tried to stop him. So in other words, the guy probably kept on doing what he was doing. And the reason that he gives is because this guy who's casting out demons isn't following us. Seems like a logical concern. The scriptures are clear. Jesus makes a statement, who would ever follow me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whatever he's about to say here to the apostle John Don't think that his statement to John is that where you attend church or whom you gather with or what types of associations you make don't matter because if that was his lesson to John, John didn't really learn that lesson very well. In the Gospel of John, he makes a statement talking about Jesus. Uh, Jesus makes the statement. He quotes Jesus. This is towards the end of his ministry. He says, Who would ever serve me must follow me. And wherever I am, there will my servant be also. So John, in recording his gospel, makes it clear that you have to follow Jesus. Then later on in 1 John, in chapter 1 John 2, 19, don't flip there, just listen, 
John makes a statement referencing this split, this division that has occurred as a result of heresy in the church. He says to the church there in Asia Minor, the reason these guys left, in other words, the reason there was a division in the church is because they were not of us. They were not of the same essence of us. They didn't believe the same things as us. And as a result, they left. So it become obvious to all of us that they weren't of us. In other words, John's teaching is that if you believe in Christ, if you follow Christ, you're going to associate and gather with those who do. So however we take Jesus' statement here, we can't take it that church associations or church affiliations or whom we gather with or whom we choose to associate with are completely irrelevant. I mean, let's just ask ourselves, if the creator of the universe were rolling around downtown Kamloops performing miracles and raising people from the dead, would we be here saying, nope, I'm with Josh? Of course not. We'd be following Jesus. So I've been asked the question, why is this guy casting out demons? Why isn't he following Jesus? I don't know. He believes in Jesus. He's performing miracles in the name of Christ, which indicates that God the Father is granting him supernatural power to achieve miraculous things because of his faith in Christ. And yet, he's not following Jesus. It's interesting. I'm not sure we can draw any definitive conclusions from that other than to scratch our heads and say, huh. Here's Jesus' response. Don't stop him. Now, that's pretty straightforward. The man is legitimately casting out demons. God the Father has approved of him. His faith in him has enabled him to cast out demons. Jesus' statement, don't stop him. It wouldn't be working if you weren't a true follower. But that's not what he says. John's objection is important. It sets the stage for what Jesus is about to say. Don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For truly I say to you, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Jesus, we want to be great. Whoever wants to be great has to become servant of all. Okay, question. There was a guy doing some really great stuff out there, but he's not following with us. I tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. The scriptures are clear. Jesus is God. We should be following him. Jesus wasn't there when this happened. If Jesus observed these guys trying to stop this guy from casting out demons, he would have tried to stop it. He wouldn't have sat back and stayed silent, which means he wasn't there when it happened. John tries to stop him. It doesn't work. His reason is that this guy wasn't following us. Which means that the dialogue would have been, hey, you're doing good things in the name of Christ. Why don't you follow us? When John says follow us, guess who's not there to hear all of this happening? Guess who's not there to stop John from rebuking, from re- ah, tongue-tied, rebuking this guy? Jesus. Which means that when John says, you're not following us, 
he means you're not following the twelve. In other words, you're not following the apostles, which means, hey, we're the great guys here. We're the awesome twelve. We're the hand-picked apostles. You shouldn't be doing your ministry because you're not with us. And Christ's response to that perspective is, don't stop him because he's doing a work in my name. In other words, John is trying to protect and uphold apostolic authority, the authority of the twelve, and Jesus' response to John is, without me, there is no us. The only us that exists, John, the only us that really matters is the us that has Christ as Lord. If his response to this guy had been, don't do that, you know, because the creator of the universe is over there, let's go follow him, I think Jesus' response might have been different. But the clear thrust of what John is saying is, look at us, we're great, we're amazing. Jesus says, serve. And his response is, well, shouldn't guys be following us? Aren't we the twelve? Aren't we amazing? We tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Now let's look a little bit more deeper at what Jesus says here. Let's take it to the next level. Don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. In other words, the focus here is on what this man says about Jesus, what he believes about Jesus, and the ministry and the work that he's engaging in for Jesus. There's two statements here in this verse. Look carefully. No one who does, number one, what you do, no one who does a mighty work, no one who behaves in a God-honoring way, no one who accomplishes God-honoring things, for my name, for the exaltation of Christ, will soon be able afterward to speak, to say something derogatory about Jesus. Now, he doesn't say it's not possible. You can do great things for the sake of Christ and then after a period of time turn your back on Christ and tarnish his reputation and speak evil of his name. Christ's teaching here is anybody that does a great work for Christ soon afterward, will not be able to speak bad about him. In other words, there's a connection between what you do and what you say. Now, the book of Proverbs makes this statement. Solomon in the book of Proverbs says, as a man believes in his heart, so he is. In other words, what you believe, what you think, the choices you make regarding what you consider to be true these things will affect who you are. As a man thinks in his heart, as he chooses to believe in his heart, so he is. Verb of being, verb of existence. Your existence in this world is defined by what you choose to believe. Now, because he believes in Christ, he is doing mighty works, and he is saying things about Christ, both of which are honoring and glorifying to the Lord. There is a connection between what you do and what you say. There's a connection between how you show love to people 
And what you say is truth, what you believe to be truth, what you confess to be truth. What you believe, what you say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what you say, that's what you believe. Based on that, you live, you exist, you love, you do things. In John's gospel, and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, his letters that he wrote, love is used some 85 times. Children, his form of endearment is used some 17 times. Love is used 85 times. There's another word that's used almost as often as love. Truth. Now what's really interesting is if you look at his letters, you will find that this apostle of love, as he's been referred to, as he's writing to the church, or writing to these specific individuals in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he addresses them as children, and then he always is quick to make this statement, whom I love in truth. In other words, your love for a person is dictated by what you believe. The way you behave in the world, the things you accomplish for God, is dictated by what you hold to be true. There is an indissoluble link between the two. Truth and love. How we love, how we behave, and what we think to be true. Is this grammatically capable of being supported from the text? Because really, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what Josh Claycamp thinks. It really matters what the Bible is saying. And this is something that every single person in this room has struggled with when it comes to doing great things for the Lord, when it comes to uh, speaking truth or loving people, there's always this fine line between I want to be loving, but I also want to speak words of truth. And, and the sort of the, the teaching that we get in the church is you have to find the right balance. We have to balance truth with love. There has to be this balance between the two. And, and I think we all struggle with that. Because sometimes we encounter a situation, we say, you know, I don't think what this person is doing is right, he's a Christian, and and I want to be a loving uh, fellow believer, a loving brother or sister in his life, and so I want to love them, but I see them going down this path, and it's dangerous, and I think I probably need to speak some truth into their life. And so, what should I say? How should I say it? How blunt Do I need to be so that they get the point of what I'm saying? How do I balance these two things? What is the correct balance? Most of you are aware I am from the United States. And most of you consider Americans, in terms of this balance between truth and love, Americans are pretty brash sometimes, pretty pretty blunt, you know what, and and arrogant, I can confess that, if I can just be honest with you. We're going to go out and fix the world, and we'll send in troops or carpet bomb, as the case may be, and uh, you know what, this is the truth, and this is how it's going to be, and let's just go ahead and let's let's just take care of business. There's no self-doubt, there's no humility in any of that, there's no questioning or examination of, is there a better way? Sometimes Americans shoot first, ask questions second. I say that as an American, so I'm allowed to say that, okay? But let's uh, look in the mirror for a second, shall we? Canadians. 
you, you don't, if I could just gently say this to you, having lived here for five years now, you, you tend to say nice things and never get around to really speaking the truth about a situation. So, so Americans just kick open the door and come on in. Canadians will knock and say, you know, I really would like to, no, I wouldn't. Hi, you're great. You're wonderful. There's nothing wrong with your life. You're perfect. I wish I could be like you. Now, I'm stereotyping for, you know, for comedic effect here. But I'm not, I'm not wide of the mark. I have found that uh, there's this desire to be polite. Call it Canadian nicety, Canadian politeness. To be polite in terms of interacting with people, you know, if, if there's a balance between truth and love, okay, maybe Americans are just too hardcore with their truth sometimes, and if that's true, okay, I accept that, but let's think about where we stand on the scale of things. As Canadians, we probably, I'm just going to say it because I love you, <laughs> you're on the polite, loving side, and, and you don't have the balance between actually saying the hard things that need to sit, be said, okay? And we're going to talk balance here. That's just who we are. What does the scripture have to say about this balance? When we turn to the Father and we say, God, what do you have to say about balancing truth and love? Do you know what he has to say about it? I think you would be surprised to learn that the Father doesn't say anything about it. One word you do not find anywhere in the entire Bible, regardless of whatever translation you prefer to use, is the word balance. You don't find it anywhere. This struggle that we have on occasion to balance truth with love, guess what? It's our own struggle that is nowhere in the Scriptures. There's a false dichotomy that we force upon the text in which we say, well, I want to be loving, but truth could hurt, and so I, you know, I'm going to just not say stuff, and I'm just going to be loving, or, or I need to be truthful, and truth comes first, and so I'm going to be truthful, and maybe that won't be perceived as loving, and, and we kind of struggle with this sort of balancing act, and guess what? It's nowhere in the Bible. What does the Bible have to say about the balance of truth and love. Jesus' statement here to John, John is big on truth and love and little children, okay? He's big on all those things. And Jesus' statement here, as a man does, so he speaks. And all of these things are tied up in his heart. But let's look closely here between truth and love. Two passages of Scripture I want you to grab. Number, number one, grab Ephesians 4, 15. To answer the question of the balancing act between truth and love, we need to ask ourselves a grammatical question regarding the text, regarding the scripture of God's word. And it has to do with prepositions, two of them in fact. What does the word in mean? In the Greek it's en, Greek preposition en. And what does the word with mean? In the Greek it's preposition soon. It's a conjunction of two things. It's a preposition it's not a preposition in English, but you, you get the point. What do these two things have to do here with each other? En and soon. In and with. What do these things have to do here? Well, they'll define the so-called balancing act that we have between truth and love. 
They'll put it in a proper perspective for us. Scripture number one. This is from Ephesians 4.15. Paul, writing the church in Ephesus, makes the statement, rather, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Okay, so the Greek word en, the preposition in, it is a word that denotes locality. Okay, locality. So, if I could just kind of have a grammar lesson with you really quick. You have a sphere here. This we will call truth. Over here, we have a sphere. This we will call love. Paul's statement in Ephesians 4.15 is that truth here can't be spoken here apart from love over there. Truth in love. Truth, this sphere of truth, properly exists only within the domain of love. Truth in love. So truth is defined by love. Huh, that's an interesting question. What do you suppose love has to say about truth? If truth is defined by love, what does... If truth is defined by love, is love defined by truth? And in fact, it is. Next verse I want you to grab is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great chapter on love. If you've ever been to a wedding, I'm sure you've heard this chapter preached about. And I want to say that to you for this reason. We have this particular text preached at weddings all the time. And as a result, we come away from weddings with this view of love that is all saccharine, all sugar, all sweet. And if we were to be really honest with 1 Corinthians 13, in other words, if we were going to approach it truthfully, you understand there's a little bit of edge here to love that requires truth. Look at what Paul says. I want you to look specifically at verse 6. He's talking the whole context of the thing is love. So we don't need to look at all, but I want you to see this one thing. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. And Paul's statement here in 1 Corinthians 13 is that there's a particular nature to love, that love finds its happiness when it's involved and engaged in doing certain things. In other words, love is defined by certain things, and if it isn't defined by those things, then it's not loving, that is, it's not a happy love, it's a sad love, or it's a deficient love, or a defective love. In other words, for love to be the truest, happiest form that God intends for it to be, you understand love does not find joy in anything that is wrong, or any wrongdoing, as the text says. Love finds joy, that is, it finds its fulfillment, it finds its ultimate satisfaction when it is with truth, with, together. So love has to reside in truth. You speak the truth in love. Truth has to reside in love, and love has to reside in truth. The two go together like two sides of a coin. They belong together the same way that the caribou belongs on the flip side of the Queen of England on a quarter. They belong together. Now, if you were to take a quarter and you were to Put that quarter in a machine, and it's, I guess it's technically possible to do it. I've never actually seen it done. But you'd put that quarter in this machine, and you're to cut this thing in half through the center of it so that you have two coins here. You have, uh, you have the caribou here, and you've got the queen here. 
okay? If you were able to just split the thing right down the middle so that you've got the two faces, could you go into a store and, and say, buy a candy bar at 7-Eleven or Petrocan, even if you gave them both halves? No, you could. If you were to take both halves of the coin and you're going in and say, they don't exist, but let's just say you got a 25-cent candy bar, okay? <laughs> and you walk in there, uh, and you have your two halves of a coin. You have a whole coin, right? You just put them together, right? That's a coin. But he wouldn't accept it. He wouldn't accept it because when you slice the quarter in half, you don't reduce it from a unit of value that's about 25 cents to a unit of value that's about 12.5 cents. In other words, by slicing the quarter in half, you don't half its value, you zero its value. Now, when it comes to God's economy and the value He places on things, you need to understand that when it comes to this balancing act that we engage in, truth and love, oh, you know, how do I put these things together? When we engage in that balancing act, what we've done is we're looking at it all wrong. We've taken a quarter, which is God's currency here, because we're not talking about just Canadian money. We're talking about how God operates with all of us, and we've sliced it in half. The scriptures don't support that. You haven't just reduced truth out of love or taken the love out of truth. You've nullified both of them to zero. You see, they exist together, they belong together, and when you cut them in half, you've lost both of them. This is what the scriptures are saying. These prepositions, these grammatical relationships that are in the word of God cannot be ignored. Truth, love rejoices with the truth, and we are to speak the truth in love. This is the Apostle Paul. But we're talking about the Apostle John. Does John use this expression in his letters? Does he see truth as properly belonging in the domain of love and love properly belonging in the domain of truth? Yes, he does. 1 John 3.18, little children, bam, children. Expression of humility. Let us not love in word or talk. In other words, our love shouldn't consist simply by the things we say and that our words have no matter, no meaning to them. Just say whatever feels good in the moment. He's, he's decrying that. Let's not just love by making sweet, sugary, happy statements to one another. Let's not do that. Let us love indeed the things we do and in truth. He puts them together. Or consider Second John. This is when he writes to the elect lady, and he tells her, don't even greet false teachers who twist and distort the word of God. Don't even greet them. Don't say hello to them. Don't go to church with them. Don't be involved with them. Don't be anywhere around them. Don't support them in any way, shape, or form. Do not give any legitimacy to people who twist and distort the scriptures. He makes this statement, the elder, to the elect lady and her children whom I Love in truth. And then in 2 John, again, 
Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us, writing it still to the elect lady. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in love and truth and love. Love and truth and truth in love. He uses the terms interchangeably. And then in 3 John, as he's writing to Gaius, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. When a man says to his wife, I love you, while he's thinking about another woman, does he love her? Maybe to some extent. But does he love her with a pure love? And when he uses that expression, I love you, is that a true statement as far as she's concerned? In other words, is he speaking to her true words or is he pulling the wool over our eyes when he says, I love you? See, love can only be spoken back and forth between us when we speak it in truth. Or perhaps consider the example of an investment banker. Some of us are saving for retirement. Hopefully all of us in this room are saving for retirement. Some of us have already embarked on retirement. Now imagine your entire life savings, your retirement has been invested, and your banker says to you, your life savings are invested for the future. And you think, yeah, that's a good statement. That's a true statement. And in his head the whole time he's thinking, this guy's portfolio is about to tank. Is it a true statement? It's a true statement. Your entire life savings are invested for the future. Nothing false about that. Nothing false about that at all. He's made a true statement to you, but your expectation is that he would say it with a heart of love. In other words, he would take your concerns and your fears and make them his own and say, man, I probably should tell this guy that his whole portfolio is about to go down the tubes. So even though it's technically true that your funds are invested for the future, it's not technically true that you have a future. Or the husband expressing love to his wife, he's expressing a true emotional heart condition, but it doesn't have the same value as what she thinks it does. So true love and true statements, a true statement is only true insofar as it is spoken in love, and a statement of love or an act of love is only love insofar as it is true. Which brings us to this pivotal question. When we speak to our neighbors about Christ, or we speak to our family members about their eternal destiny, or when we share with our neighbors about the things that are depressing them or causing them anxiety or the struggles that they're having with their kids or in their work or with their boss. When we, as God's people who claim to know the truth, hold out the truth, do we hold out the truth to them in a manner that is loving? In other words, do we desire them to embrace that truth? Or do we make an investment banker type of statement where we say something to the effect of, to each his own. 
Godspeed, good day. Your funds are invested for the future. Or when we say to a person, I'm a Christian, I believe we're called to love people, and I just want you to know I love you, when you have never spoken to them at all about their need for Jesus Christ. Is that a true statement? Not as far as the scriptures are concerned. Truth aims at love. That's the thing you're shooting for. Instructing people about the facts of life is not the goal. Just telling them like it is is not exactly what we're going for here. It's a means to an end. They need to know how it is. We need to tell them like it is, but with the goal of loving them. It's to serve relationships. Our understanding of the truth is to serve mainly the relationship between us and God, also between me and you, Christian to Christian, and ultimately it's also necessary to understand a correct, to have a correct relationship between us and unbelievers. Number one, truth aims at love. Number two, love aims at truth. Paul makes a statement, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, it rejoices with the truth. Love is glad when truth is spoken. Therefore, love aims at the truth, it supports the truth, it holds to the truth. You know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul had to write a tough letter to that church. A tough letter. Actually, in 2 Corinthians, he was referring to his previous letter that he wrote, which was a a tough letter. 2 Corinthians was sort of the, I'm glad we can be friends letter. But 1 Corinthians was a letter that he wrote, which was a hard letter confronting them, rebuking them. He makes this statement, out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have for you. In other words, I told you hard things. I spoke hard truths to you. I confronted you about things, not so you would be sad. And he doesn't say, not so that you would know the truth. His statement is, I wrote to you hard, true things so that you would know I love you. I love you. Love also needs to shape how we speak the truth. If you're speaking the truth to win a debate or to win an argument, to prove that you are right. We're not thinking of ourselves as all of us little children at this point now, are we? We're not thinking of ourselves as all equals in the eyes of the Father, and we're not attempting to serve others from a spirit of humility if we are trying to prove that we are right. Now, we are right. The Word of God is clear. We don't have to get angry and beat our chests, and flaunt it. Truth shapes how we are to show love. John makes a statement. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not always burdensome, are not burdensome. 
it is not always obvious which acts are loving. John tells us that some truths will help us show, will help us to know if our acts are loving. And our truth test for our love is whether we will keep the commandments of God toward people, which is that we love them. That's what John is saying. I think that for us as Canadians, when it comes to this so-called balancing act, we need to remember there's no true word spoken if it's not spoken in love, and there's no loving word spoken if there is any hint of indulgence or avoidance or refusing to be completely honest. It's not loving if you tell people what they want to hear even though you know it's not true. That's not loving. So we need to get back to an understanding of truth and love and how those two things go together. G.K. Chesterton, writing in 1908, made the statement, what we suffer from today is humility. We suffer from humility, okay? What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction, of truth, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been re- exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that is uh, that nowadays the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert, namely himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, namely divine truth. The new skeptic is so humble that he doubts if he can even learn the truth. There is a humility typical of our time, but it so happens that it's practically a more poisonous humility than the wildest prostrations of the ascetic. The old humility made a man doubtful about his efforts, which actually might make him work harder, but the new humility makes a man doubtful about his aims, which makes him stop working altogether. We are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe even in the multiplication table. Do you believe in the multiplication table? I hope you do. (laughs) You know, if you can come to the conviction that 2 plus 2 equals 4, or it's corollary that 2 times 2 is also 4, if you can arrive at that grasp of truth, guess what? As far as the Word of God is concerned, you can also arrive at the fact that Jesus Christ saves and there is salvation in no other name. You should be able to speak that with the same confidence as what you say about two plus two, or two times two. John, his whole life, was passionate about the truth. Humble, a humble conviction, in which he saw the world around him as he saw himself in God's eyes. Little children. None of us are great, none of us are magnificent. In God's eyes, we are all small. And out of that realization came greatness. The greatness to speak loving and true words. True and loving words. True words aimed at love and loving people with an aim towards them arriving at the truth. The two went together. There was no balancing act. A lot of things happened to John People say, well, how did this guy end up? Whatever became of him? He lived longer than any of the other apostles. 
into his 90s, in fact. All kinds of early church fathers comment that he was burned, dipped in flaming, uh, boiling oil, uh, imprisoned. We know for a fact from the scriptures that he was exiled on the island of Patmos, but most likely what happened, despite his repeated tortured things that he suffered, because he was tortured, we know that, and despite the fact that he was exiled to the island of Patmos towards the end of his life, we know that too, by most accounts, and this is original to the early church father, Jerome, most of the early church fathers support this, John died around 98 AD, somewhere in his mid-90s, as an old man still attending the church at Ephesus up until his dying day. The early church fathers commented on the fact that he was so weak and so frail that on Sunday morning, the younger men in the church would come and get him on his bed and carry him to church at his request. And the church at Ephesus was so blown away by his resilience and his determination to be at church, even though he was too weak and too old to even get out of bed. He wanted to be there on a Sunday morning with God's people worshiping. They asked him, why do you want to be here? And his response always was this, little children, I love you. If I can't make it to church on a Sunday to see all of God's people, then what is the point of living? He used the expression over and over again, my little children love one another as Christ has loved you. My little children love, that is the commandment we have. Little children love, little children be true to each other. Asked why he always said this, his last recorded words, mentioned by Jerome in his commentary on the book of Galatians, of all books, said that one of the last recorded comments that John ever made when asked why he was always talking about love and truth. It is the Lord's command that we love in truth. And if this alone can be done, it is enough. Bridge Baptist Church, my friends from Logan Lake, be true, be loving, and know that there is no separation between the two. As a man believes in his heart, so he is. If we love one another in truth, it will honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow for a word of prayer.